According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah, and we have arrived at chapter 8 this morning. Handling one chapter per Sunday for uh, 52 chapters means uh, we've got a one-year roller coaster in the, uh, the weeping prophet. And uh, why is he called the weeping prophet? You might learn in this chapter <laughs> in terms of uh, his eyes. And uh, if you don't learn in this chapter, you'll definitely learn in the next chapter. Chapter 9 begins, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. And so it won't take us very long and uh, we will be fully on board with the weeping prophet for who he is. Remember, Jeremiah is a youth when he's first called, probably eight years old when he's first called to prophetic ministry, maybe ten. And uh, he ministers for a long, long time uh, up until the point that Jerusalem is destroyed. And uh, unlike Daniel and Ezekiel, those prophets, they were rescued. Those prophets got taken away to Babylon, and in captivity, they got to continue their, their prophetic ministry from Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah was not so assigned. His assignment was to stay in the city, to remain and to endure the siege, to endure the starvation and the cannibalism and all the other darkness of what happened in Jerusalem during those years. And then to be rescued as the city falls. And as we understand it, he lives out his days in Egypt uh, by the end of his life. He's taken down there. So we'll get that far. We're uh, not quite there yet. We're still dealing with the early material. Jeremiah chapter 8, at that time declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves. They will spread them out to the sun, the moon, to all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshiped. They will not be gathered or buried. They will be as dung on the face of the ground. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, there's a happy message. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's bow before our Father and ask for his blessings upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, thankful, Father, for every facet of your truth. And some messages are obviously happier than others. Some messages are pretty dark, Father, and yet they're from you. They are for our instruction. I pray that we would learn the warnings as you give them, that we would learn from Judah in their apostasy, that we would pay heed to the weeping prophet. Father, I thank you for Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness. I thank you for his message. I uh, tremble, Father, to consider how applicable the book of Jeremiah may soon become to our nation, Father, in the discipline and displeasure that our nation may in fact be on the way. Father, I know that uh, our nation likewise is evil and full of idolaters. Father, uh, who knows, but if we ourselves may find ourselves preaching Jeremiah, to a generation that watches the fall, uh, the fall of our culture. So, Father, equip us, build us up, strengthen us, bless us through the teaching of your word on this day. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, in a lot of ways, uh, this opening paragraph here continues um, the tail end of what we dealt with a week ago. And it, had I been in charge of chapterfication years ago, uh, I probably would have taken these first three verses and shoved them into chapter 7. Because the at that time that you start the chapter with points back, connects it to the conclusion of, of chapter 7, and the issues were days are coming. Remember, uh, we discussed this last week in verse 32 of chapter 7. Days are coming is used repeatedly through Jeremiah, and they're never happy messages, all right? The days are coming speaks of wrath. Days are coming speaks of judgment, speaks of the coming Antichrist and the warfare that is still yet future for the Jewish people. 
So days are coming when the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the valley of Gehenna gets renamed, when it lives up to its very name, Gehenna, that uh, Jesus uses in the Gospels as a reference for hell itself. It will become hell on earth during the warfare of of the Great Tribulation. And so, uh, as you see these kind of gruesome verses here at the end of chapter 7, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. You know, vultures, uh, they're, they're chowing down until a car comes along or somebody and scares them away and their, their meal gets interrupted. Well, in, after this warfare, there's nothing that's going to interrupt their meal. The, the vultures have nothing to do but gorge themselves because of the totality of wrath that's poured out during the coming uh, judgment upon Israel. Then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. The land will become a ruin. And this basically represents the depths of how bad it gets during the time of Jacob's trouble, during the tribulation of Israel, until, of course, Jesus returns. And then Jesus has his promises that he brings with him, where he turns the mourning into joy and he turns the the sorrow into rejoicing and so forth. So that's how chapter 7 ended. And if you were with us last week then, uh, and you've kept your train of thought since last Sunday, then you're right there with us, all right? So you're ready to cross over now into chapter 8, and you just take it in stride with the at that time declares the Lord. And you realize we're still dealing with a tribulational judgment. And then we'll bring out the bones of the kings. And so what's the big deal about desecrating uh, cemeteries anyway and, and taking bones out of tombs and laying them out there before the sun and moon and stars and using necromancy, using uh, the sorcery of, of death to uh, incorporate in, within your worship of the sun, moon, and stars within your worship of the demons and the fallen angels as the, uh, the Bible describes it. And I do find it as really a, a sad commentary. This final desecration illustrates the extent that the queen of heaven worship is our first little glimmer into queen of heaven worship that we're going to find repeated throughout the book of, Je- of Jeremiah. But the queen of heaven worship spotlights the sun, moon, and stars all right, again and again and again and again. And all of it is oriented towards that sacred feminine queen of heaven. All right, and some of you have other studies unconnected from this, just related to some of the modern paganism that's out these days. It goes back to Jeremiah, all right? And so the teaching that we're going to get in this book will actually bless us in uh, certain respects. But the queen of heaven worship, which the leading families of Judah had resorted to at the end, and a lot of argument about who the they is. You know, when you say they, you know what they say, and you want to know, well, who's they, right? Well, they will bring out the bones. Well, who's they? Is it the conquering armies? Are they the ones that are going to bring out the bones? Or is it the, um, the uh, Jews themselves? And I believe that's the case because of the rebuke that happens here to this family of wickedness, the, this evil family that remains, the, the, the last gasp that they have, and what they're attempting to do to survive the siege, and what they're attempting to do to, uh, to any God that will deliver them at this point and uh, resorting to uh, queen of heaven worship for their rescue. When God has already told them there is no rescue, all right? God has already sent Daniel to, to Babylon. He did that in 605 BC. He sent Ezekiel to Babylon in 597 BC. By the time you get to this final destruction in 586, it is wrath of God. Mercy's already been poured forth. He rescued the remnant already. Now it's wrath that's on the way. And so uh, we have it here. If you want to do additional passages to connect with this, I would recommend it. I would encourage it. Uh, I'm I'm just going to grab these very quickly and not spend a ton of time on it this morning. But way back in Deuteronomy, Moses warned them about this when he was bringing them out of Egypt and establishing them as a nation. He said, you're going into a land where there's pagans and they worship the sun, moon, and stars and don't copy the pagans, all right? Uh, anymore, I, I don't see much difference between Christians and pagans and, and the way folks are living and choices they're making and things they're doing. And, it, and that bugs me. Should we not be a peculiar people? Should we not be different in uh, the way folks are looking at us? But Deuteronomy 4.19, Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole 
heaven. There's a design for angels and it's not to worship them. All right, and there's a design for the sun, moon, and stars created for seasons and for signs. And the, the universe is structured the way that it is, but it's not to worship. All right, and all too often, I think what we find is we find uh, men are ex- exchanging, exchanging God for the, the creator, for the creature. All right, and instead of worshiping the creator, they're worshiping the creature. And, uh, and the, the Lord describes that for the evil in which it is. All right. Uh, likewise, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, still Moses, still warning the uh, wilderness generation there. Um, and this is uh, what needs to happen here. And it's, it seems um, severe. And it is for a reason. It is severe. And so um, the chapter begins, Deuteronomy 17, 1 says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect. For that is detestable, a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Well, what's, what's wrong with that? What's the big deal? All right, it is a big deal. Because the animal ritual is supposed to teach doctrine. It's supposed to teach the principle that our Savior is sinless and perfect. When you sacrifice an animal with a flaw, you are besmirching the character of Jesus Christ himself. And God the Father is not well pleased in such a, uh, an abomination. And then it goes on, if there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. All right? There is an effect not just upon them. It's not just, well, live and let live and let them believe what they want to believe. Remember, Israel is not a multicultural uh, uh, republic as we are in the United States. They are very much a theocracy. And the God of Israel says that there are no other gods beside him. And so uh, worshiping the sun, moon, and stars uh, comes under judgment. And if it's told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. In other words, you can't turn a blind eye. You've heard of it. The report has come to you. You can't just act like, well, I didn't know. You shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates and you shall stone them to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, And so the, uh, the uh, worship of the Lord God was uh, uh, to, to violate that was absolutely banned in, in uh, Israel in the Old Testament. You understand, as they were a theocracy in the Old Testament. All right, I'm not advocating that for us today. We are not a theocracy in terms of the United States of America. We have freedom. People are free to worship stupid stuff. All right, but thankfully, the freedom they have to be stupid gives me the freedom to worship the Lord God. All right, and and that's why we defend our country and why we're thankful for what we have there. All right, Jeremiah seven. Now to. Uh, kind of follow up what we're dealing with just a week ago in in chapter 7 we had this in verse 18 so it shouldn't really shock us that we see it again here in chapter 8 the um remember it became a family affair Remember, uh, got the whole family involved in this. You like to have your family in church. It's great to have mom and dad and kids and everything uh, where church becomes a, a family blessing, uh, but not in idolatry, all right? And they had turned queen of heaven worship into idolatry. And uh, the children gather wood and the fathers kindle, kindle the fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Those cakes, by the way, were aphrodisiacs and they were shaped in the different uh, shapes that they were shaped in for... Uh, purposes all right um ask me after class and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me do they spite me declares the lord all right and the sad thing is i'm getting the kids involved in this to gather the 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 fire the way they're doing that because the the actual fertility activity they get involved with is not appropriate for the children and yet you see what happens. You sexualize your youth and then uh, things get worse from there. Do they spite me, declares the Lord. And so we had it last week in chapter 7. It'll come back again in chapter 19 and then we have a longer development in chapter 44. So stay tuned. We'll come back to these issues again and again. It really became center, uh, center stage in the final 
uh, probably 20 years, in the final uh, generation of uh, survivors there in Jerusalem. Remember King Josiah, the good king that was on the throne when, when uh, Jeremiah became a, a prophet? He was the last of the good kings. All right? So when Josiah dies, and Josiah died in 609, all right, when Josiah dies, there are no more good kings after that. Every king after Josiah is more wicked than the one before. And it's a downhill slide to the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 19.13, the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled. See, these kind of sins are defiling. It's not just an effect on the person. It's a, it's a, there's a defiling effect on the, the territory. The real estate, the land itself becomes defiled. Like Topheth. We saw Topheth last week as well. Because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. They go up on the roof and build their little shrine to the sun, moon, and stars. And then they go up there and fornicate under the sun, moon, and stars and worship the, the gods of heaven, particularly the queen of heaven. All right? And uh, nowadays, our rooftops, what are we doing on our rooftops? Ask me again Wednesday night. All right, but no, think about it. Every rooftop becomes an idol. It becomes a, a centerpiece to what? The sun. That's right. We're, we're going we're gonna, to, don't get me going on the, the green energy of solar power, but every rooftop becomes a temple. All right, every rooftop becomes a temple in different ways. Finally then, chapter 44. And a three-verse stretch here, verses 17, 18, and 19. And, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's wrath that's on the way. There will be punishment. It's hard just to jump into the middle of this context. But um, the men who, in verse 15, men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods. You know, if you've lost control of your family and your wife is uh, worshiping in a, in a structure that uh, you're not happy about, well, whose fault is that? Are you the head of your home or what are you doing? And uh, they're aware that uh, their wives are burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who are standing by as in a large assembly, including all the people who are living in Paphros and so forth. Anyway, here comes a message, and uh, it's a message of wrath. Uh, verse 16, as for the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. It's like you're open a church service, the whole congregation stands up and says, well, good morning, pastor, we're not going to listen to you. <laughs> All right, so this is kind of the response Jeremiah is going to get. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to do what we want to do. Sounds like 21st century American uh, Christianity in a lot of ways. By burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah. Notice, they're even claiming an idolatry heritage. Denying, oh no, 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 no. Our country doesn't have a Christian heritage. Are you kidding? No, no, no. They were deists. We have a, we have a pluralistic heritage. We have a non-Christian heritage. We have a pagan heritage. We need to celebrate our pagan heritage. That's what they're doing here just as our forefathers did, uh, our princes in the, in the cities and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and we were well off and we saw no misfortune. Everything was always great back in the good old days, right? We always had plenty to eat. It's like when we were slaves in Egypt, man, we had fish and we had meat. We had vegetables. Everything was great. It was only when we abandoned our idolatry and started serving Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, then things got bad. And we start to blame the true God for everything bad and start giving credit to all the demons for everything good. And you see how it's upside down and backwards, calling good evil and evil good. It is, it is a reality that is diametrically opposed to the real reality. All right? And so uh, we never saw any misfortune. Verse 18 then, but since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything. We've met our end by the sword and by famine. So, yeah, we need to, we need to go back to uh, the, the, the militant feminism of, of this goddess worship here and uh, so forth. Is that the answer? No, it's not the answer. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 44. 
As far as the defilement of the graves is concerned, let's say some things here about bones. You know, does it matter where you're buried? Does it matter if you're buried or cremated? You know, resurrection does not depend on known burial locations. And I find it interesting. Even though it does not matter, nevertheless, in the Scriptures, there is a significance placed upon where folks are laid to rest. That it becomes a testimony, becomes a cultural testimony to the hope of the resurrection. And so, whereas resurrection does not depend on known burial locations, however, clearly marked graves, they do serve as a testimony and anticipation for the life to come. It is significantly expressed throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament that the known burial locations become testimonies. They become significant points of emphasis in different applications, you see. Because we're not pagans. We don't just believe that death is the end of it. And so we don't just, uh, you know... And think about even... um, Egyptians and all their embalming and the mummies and all the practices of the ancient world and all the different customs they came up with. Why? <laughs> Why? Uh, you know, my family is Germanic, so we had a lot of Vikings and a lot of other um, godless stuff, you know. And the, the chief, you know, the Viking, he gets buried with his favorite wife. You know, too bad for her, right? And then, because uh, she gets buried alive to travel with him into Valhalla and things. Um, why do these customs come about the way that they do? Okay, Now, biblically, what is the impact of this? And, and this really would be a study that we could take you know, six or eight weeks to deal with, and all I've got is today. Um, but why was it significant? Why was it in Genesis 47, Jacob was so insistent that he would not be buried in Egypt? Why did he make his sons promise to carry him up to, to the cave of, in Hebron? to be buried in the cave of Machpelah where he could be buried with Abraham and with Isaac? And then when Joseph, why were, why were Joseph's bones carried out of Egypt? Why were Joseph's bones brought to the land of Ephraim where Joseph could be buried in the land of Ephraim? All right? The bones of Joseph is a significant doctrine that ends the book of, of Genesis and begins the book of, of uh, Exodus and gets featured in the book of Joshua. By the time Joshua leads all the conquest of the land, first order of business for Ephraim is they have to bury the bones of Joseph. See, well, it provides for a testimony and an anticipation of the life to come. It was a big deal in Acts chapter 2 when uh, Peter is preaching uh, in, in that sermon. And he talks about the, the, the prophecy of resurrection. He quotes Psalm 16 about how Yahweh will not allow Jesus Christ to undergo decay. And there's a, a, a bad understanding of, of Psalm 16 that thinks that David was talking about himself. And uh, Peter says, nope, Psalm 16 isn't talking about David because David's dead and his grave is with us to this day. See, he says, Jesus, on the other hand, his grave is empty. His grave was empty on day three that he, uh, he was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the significance of that is, is, uh, is crucial to, to biblical Christianity. If there is no resurrection, we are useless in our faith. You understand? I also think it's significant in Matthew 28 when Jesus does walk out of the grave and uh, additional people that are resurrected on that same day and they, they make appearances in Jerusalem and they appear to people who know that they're dead and they appear to them having been resurrected with Christ, the first fruits of Jesus Christ having been made alive. That's uh, an extraordinary story there as well. But relax in terms of uh, choices we make today and cremation and burial and whatever else. If you've, you know, your loved ones have been sprinkled over Yankee Stadium or whatever. Um, In the resurrection, God knows where your remains are. (laughs) And he can reassemble them from everywhere. The worst ones, I think, are the ones that perished at sea. You know, they've been eaten by the fish and dissolved by the ocean water and whatever else. Um, there's very little left of, of, of a human body after a period of time, depending on how it's been buried. It doesn't, doesn't thwart the resurrection. We will be resurrected, everybody, when that trumpet sounds, and we can uh, certainly appreciate that. But think about the benefit. Think about, too, when an entire family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are all buried together, or David and Rehob- Solomon and Rehoboam and all the, the lines of the kings. 
to be buried together, to, to sleep with the fathers is the, is the idiom, right? So that when they wake up, that's where they are, say, together in the resurrection. Anyway, different aspects there. We've got to move on, though. Let's look at verses 4 through 12 with some rhetorical questions. I love rhetorical questions, don't you? <laughs> rhetorical questions answer themselves. Because if you try to answer them any other way than how they're designed to be answered, you just look stupid, all right? A rhetorical question answers itself. And yet they can be very useful. You can use them uh, highly instructive. It's a, it's a great method. Jesus used this method. A lot of people use this method. You can train children with this method. That way they give you the answer themselves out of their own mouth. All right? Rhetorical questions can become proverbial rebukes. And that's what happens here. Let's look at verses 4 through 12 now, Jeremiah chapter 8. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? How long does that last? All right. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have not spoken what is, they have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course, like a horse charging into the battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. I mean, stupid birds know when it's time to fly south for the winter, and when it's time to fly back north, and, and so forth. And if dumb birds can figure out what they're supposed to do, what's wrong with you people? All right? You guys have scripture. You guys have prophets. You guys have, have uh, the, the fellowship with God himself in the temple. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? One of the biggest failures of all, and so many churches are guilty of this, saying, well, you know, we have all the answers. <laughs> you know? We, and, and of course, different churches will argue about that as far as who has really has all the answers, all right? God has all the answers. But how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. You get caught every time. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Let me tell you, when you substitute your wisdom for God's wisdom, you have just entered into the realm of demonism. You have just uh, ventured into the realm of the wisdom that is from below. That wisdom which is earthly, natural, demonic. And we're going to be very clear on that as we show you James 3 and show you the, the, uh, the demonstration of that here from the Scriptures. Therefore I will give their wives to others. Well, that's not good. Their fields to new owners. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the, prophet, from the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. They're in it for the money, right? The for-profit prophet. And uh, he tells the people what they want to hear because that's where the bucks come in. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially. You know, when you go to a doctor, do you want them to really fix the disease or fix the broken arm or whatever? Or do you want them just to lie to you and say, there, that's okay. You know, give you a placebo, give you a sugar pill or whatever. You know, it's as good as, you know, mom kissing the boo-boo and saying, is there, it's all better now. What did he really do? It's a superficial fix. And saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know, the the preachers of peace are always going to be the popular ones. You know, why do the Jews believe it every time? They they believe every lie. They believe Yasser Arafat. Oh yeah, the, the, the Palestinians want peace. No, they don't. But they believe it every time. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. We've seen this before. They are so steeped into their evil, they no longer have even a human conscience. Even a human conscience that could testify to their sinfulness. They have stamped that down as well. They don't even know how to blush anymore. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. All right, so that's verses 4 through 12. We want to handle that as a unit as well. These rhetorical questions, starting off with my my favorite one. You know, you ever see somebody fall down, right? Seen somebody trip? I've seen lots of people trip. I've got kids. You know, toddlers trip. They they toddle, they fall. 
And did you ever see they just laid there? You know, the question is, who falls down and doesn't get back up again? You know, have you ever met anybody that tripped and fell down? All right. I'm not talking about a serious injury where they're invalid and whatever, but just somebody that just tripped. And then they're laying there saying, oh, well, I guess this is where I'm stuck. (laughs) Okay. Who does that? Who does that? No, you fell down. All right. Pick yourself. Pick yourself up. Keep going. Who does that? Who falls down and doesn't get back up again? And that's why this message here on repentance is so simple. Repentance is easy. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guess what? God knows we're not perfect. He knows we're going to fall down. That's why He's made provision for us to confess. Failure to repent and return to the Lord is beyond tragic. There is no reason for it. We have uh, what we've already read there in Jeremiah 8. We also have Proverbs 24, 16, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is right there in Luke 15. That's the prodigal son. You know, and he, he comes to his senses. He's, he's living in that land. He's watching these pigs. The pigs are eating better than he is. He's starving. And he comes to his senses and he realizes all he has to do is go back to his father's house. That he's got his father has servants that are eating better than any of these guys over here. And and so the the whole point is, I just gotta go back. Why can I not go back? See. And then he tries to go back, and instead of going back as a son, he tries to go back and be a servant. Yeah, he goes back and fills out a job application, says, you know, can I be a a servant? And the dad uh, says, No, 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 you're my son. You're my son. And he slays the fatted calf and puts the robe on him and gives him the signet ring. He, we can always return because we never stop being sons. Even in the depths of our sins, we're still sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And we can always return. What a provision. What an absolute provision. I'm not going to turn to Luke 15, but you know the story. Let me grab Proverbs. Proverbs 24:16. You know, it ought to be just simply a matter of forsaking, confessing, returning back. How hard is that? Well, really, the only difficulty of it is our human pride. The only, the, the toughest thing about repentance, the toughest thing of confession is, is we got to actually acknowledge and admit, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm living in defiance of the Word of God. I'm a rebel. And sometimes humanity has a tough time confessing the reality of our own rebellion. Proverbs twenty four sixteen. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. I find that interesting. Seven times, and guess what? Seventy times seven, right? Just keep getting back up. Just keep getting back up. There is no limit, okay? And I can appreciate that. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Replacing God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. Oh my goodness, is that what we're doing? exchanging the truth of God for a lie, replacing God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. That's what the rest of this paragraph is dealing with here. Verses 8 through 12. How can you say we are wise? You're substituting your own wisdom for what God said. And because you're in defiance of His wisdom, you're facing consequences. (laughs) You know, God's wisdom, uh, obedience is for our blessing, defiance is for our judgment. And yet we can, uh, we can keep insisting that we know better. And any time we do, we're just headed for a worse, a worse crash. How can you say we are wise? So much of this we've dealt with already because of our First Corinthians series, remember? And in contrasting the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. As far as God's concerned, the world's wisdom is foolishness. And as far as the world is concerned, it's the same thing, right? God's wisdom is foolishness. The world looks at you and says, man, why do you even go to church? You're wasting your time. What a, what a, what a colossal waste. Man, Sundays, you could, be, you could be walking the dog. You could be cutting the grass. You could be, there's all kinds of stuff you can get done on a Sunday morning. You could be sleeping off the hangover from last night. There's a lot of things you could be doing this morning. But you guys are wasting your time. What fools reading this mythology, reading this primitive, uh, unbelievable book, right? That's from their perspective. We're fools. From God's perspective, they're the fools. And so Romans 1, verses 22 and 23 talk about that. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. 
worshiping the creature rather than the creator, substituting God's wisdom for something that's far less than God's wisdom, and even worse, trying to blend the two. That bugs me to death. It just, you know, the idea that I'm going to take anti-Christian Freudian psychology and I'm going to blend it in with the Bible. And I'm going to get a kind of a nice mixture. Yeah, a mixture of truth and a mixture of darkness. How about that? And Scripture says there's no harmony between light and darkness. Different aspects there. James 3. I'll grab Romans on my way to James. How about that? Romans 1, 22 and 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You know, the wisdom of this age is so stupid, so convinced that, of course, that Big Bang is true and science and evolution is real and normal and, and we're just hairless apes that kind of evolved and got better and all this other stuff. And they can't even figure out the men's room versus the women's room. You know, this culture is so lost. They're living in complete oblivion in total rejection of male and female, He created them. Right? God created them in man's image. Male and female, He created them. It's as simple as that. Unless you go to the wisdom of this world. And then it's just darkness and insanity. James 3, verses 14 through 16. If you're not praying for your children, who are they going to grow up and marry? You know, are there any uh, churches still teaching the truth? Are there normal people anymore? James three fourteen through sixteen. Verse thirteen asks the question about who is wise and understanding, and then notice uh, it should be evident. It'll be very clear what wisdom you're using by your activity. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That's pretty indicative. You're using the wrong wisdom. That ambition, that dog-eat-dog, that step on whoever to get ahead, that's not God's wisdom. That's the world's wisdom. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Is that how you want to conduct your life? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Good news, though. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. What a provision. And it's laid out there as an either-or, as a black or white absolute issue. I'm either using God's wisdom or I'm using the world's wisdom. There's no middle ground, say which we saw last hour as well, dealing with the absolute issues of spirituality. Well, Israel can only blame themselves because this is uh, what they're headed for. The stork knows its seasons. The turtle dove knows its seasons. And here's Jerusalem just sitting there. Don't have the common sense God gave a billy goat, right? They're sitting there like turkeys in the rain. And it hits them on the head and they look up to see what hit them and they drown. Absolutely. They're sitting in Jerusalem. They can't, it doesn't, it doesn't never dawn on them why Nebuchadnezzar and all the Babylonians have them surrounded or what's coming next. See. Oh, that's horrific. All right. Judah's judgment is certain and inescapable. Verses 13 through 17. Therefore, Jeremiah will lament over the sad message. He doesn't want to preach this. Are you kidding? He does not want to preach this. Jeremiah has such a love for the Lord and has such a love for the Lord's uh, heritage. This is the last message he wants to deliver. I, I find it interesting how God selects certain prophets. God didn't put Jonah in this circumstance. Jonah went to go preach the destruction of, uh, of uh, or the repentance of Nineveh, and didn't want to. He wanted to see Nineveh get blasted. 
And I find it interesting how many of God's prophets in the Old Testament end up uh, not being sent to a mission that they were necessarily uh, in agreement with. And yet uh, they stayed faithful. We can be thankful for that. Their judgment is certain and inescapable, and yet they've got a plan. Oh, they've got a plan. Don't just sit there. Do something, right? Isn't that human action? We're just gonna we're gonna take matters in our own hands. We're gonna we're gonna do something. Well, here's what God says He's gonna do, and then here's what Judah says they're gonna do, and one of them's right. So Jeremiah eight thirteen shows you how certain the judgment is and how inescapable. And I wonder, we don't have a prophetic utterance today or a book of the Bible that describes uh, American apostasy in twenty sixteen A.D. But I wonder if it is incurable. I wonder if there is a revival on the way or if we've passed a point where it's possible. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. Now, he's the God who cannot lie, but he makes these statements in the strongest of possible ways. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. He is ending them as a nation, and he is ending every celebration they're eligible to have. All right. No more grain offerings, no more uh, drink offerings, no more worship. And so their response to the I will message, why are we sitting still? <laughs> let's not just sit here. Let's do something. Let's stop this. Let's put an end to this. Assemble yourselves. Let us go to a fortified city. All right, so obviously there's strength in numbers. If we just cooperate and work together, we can accomplish anything. It's almost like they're going to achieve their own little Tower of Babel right here in this episode. In fact, the language is largely similar to Genesis chapter 11. They're going to assemble together. They're going to build something. They're going to have a place of strength. Can't touch us, not in this city. Assemble yourselves, let us go to the fortified cities, let us perish there, because the Lord our God has doomed us and given us poison water to drink, for we have sinned against the Lord. And you can almost hear the sarcasm in their voice. They're mocking Him in His declaration. Oh, we're sinners, huh? We waited for peace, but no good came. A time of healing, but behold, terror and all of this is, it's, we, we, we relate to this very well because this is the common human activity of making excuses and blaming others. And that's what they're doing here as a nation. From Dan has heard the snorting of its horses. Remember, Dan is to the far north. The armies are attacking from the north. And the sound of the neighing of the stallions, the whole land quakes. For they come and they devour the land in its fullness, the city and its inhabitants. Behold, I'm sending serpents against you, adders for which there is no charm, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. You know, imagine. Remember there was an episode in the wilderness wanderings where a bunch of snakes uh, appeared among them and started biting them and they had to look to the, to the cross in order to live, right? They had to look to that standard. And the only way to, to be saved from the serpents is to look to that standard that Moses lifted up a, a standard they could look and live. Well, there's no standard in this chapter. (laughs) Serpents come and they're getting bit and they're dying. They're dropping dead. So judgment is certain. And yet uh, they think they can thwart it. Self-assembly. Self-assembly and the choice of venue. I find it interesting as if it makes a difference. People always think they can solve a problem. It just has to be solved over there. Okay? That job will fix it because this job was horrible. That state will be great because this state was horrible. That wife will be the best ever because, man, this wife is awful. And there's a human tendency that says, if I just choose my venue, choose my job, my town, my spouse, my, my everything, I'm sovereign, I'm in charge. Okay, And as if we're going to thwart the will of God. This is, this is in almost every chapter of the Bible. This goes back to, to Genesis and the Tower of Babel and Genesis 11. This goes to Armageddon. you know why they're gathered in Armageddon? You know, it, it, it boggles the mind. It makes me laugh, all right? They, they, uh, they believe that if they work together, they can thwart the will of God. I, I think Armageddon is the final United Nations building. You know? What were they trying to do with the League of Nations? What were they trying to do with the United Nations? What are they going to try to do with whatever comes after the United Nations? 
all right, which I think is going to be the revived Roman Empire, eschatological Rome. I think that the, the ten toes of the Roman statue will be the new United Nations on this planet. And then Armageddon. See, there's nothing new under the sun. Satan's the same liar that he's always been and convinces humans to follow after him like he always does. He doesn't have a hard time doing that. All right, well, goodness. Can you smell the food yet? I know potluck Sundays are the worst Sundays in the whole calendar. If you're visiting with us too, by the way, you picked a great Sunday because we've got uh, potluck dinner and uh, it's always good stuff. And thankfully, uh, Scott Grubb uh, designed this building and we put the, the, the pulpit as far away from the kitchen it's the, it's the farthest away. All the rest of you can probably smell it by now, and I'm the last one that gets to smell it. Well, Genesis 11, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So to us be the glory, great things we have done, right? Let's build a name for ourselves instead of worshiping the name of the Lord God. Well, is there any difference between that and Revelation? You know, um, they, again, it's a judgment upon Babel and, uh, and aspects there. Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, Revelation 20. I, I find this interesting. Still future from our perspective, hasn't happened yet. Waiting, waiting for these things to unfold once the church uh, departs. He takes us to heaven and then resumes the program for Israel. And notice they're going to be gathered together for Armageddon. Well, why? Why are they gathered together? Revelation 16, verses 14 and 16. Well, it tells us um, these three spirits come forth. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And what a day this is going to be. What a war this is going to be. All right? And the spirit that goes forth globally to influence this. I, I tell you, there's a spirit at work today, and I can't explain it, but it, it, it boggles the mind, that spirit that's at work that causes politicians to get these ideas in their, through their thick skull somehow. I tell you, verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Har Megadon. Har is mountain in Megiddo. It's very well known in the Old Testament. Many battles that were fought there. Bring it across into the Greek. It comes across as Armageddon. Okay? And it's, uh, it's going to be something. It hadn't happened yet. It's going to be something to behold. Okay? Nothing to do with the Bruce Willis movie. Nothing to do with uh, any of that. And look what they're trying to do, though. In 1919, and uh, Antichrist has now gathered all the armies of the world together, 200 million demon-possessed soldiers from the Far East. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled. Why? To make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, we've already seen, that's Jesus Christ. The heavens are open and Jesus Christ descends. And when he comes at second advent, it's not the humble baby in the manger. Okay? When he comes at second advent, he is in battlefield glory, riding on the white horse, and the armies of heaven are following behind him. And Antichrist believes he can thwart that. He believes he can stop the return of Jesus Christ. Why do you think the, the Muslims bricked up the eastern gate in Jerusalem when, when Islam took Jerusalem in the, in the 7th century? Yeah. As if bricking up an eastern gate is going to stop Jesus Christ. Why do you think the armies are assembled together? They're trying to stop the second advent. And they're going to make war against Jesus Christ. All right, well, I can read the rest of that chapter and find out they lose. Jesus wins. He lays hold of them, throws them in the lake of fire. And you know, the millennium begins and Satan is bound for a thousand years. And guess what? He comes out a final time in Revelation 20 and verse 8. He gets that one final parole, which bugs me. I don't believe in parole, but there it is. He gets this one final parole 
And he, I don't believe in prison anyway. I mean, that's, that's not biblical. But he gets one final parole. And he comes out and he leads one final rebellion. Gog Magog. And uh, as it says, he comes out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them, notice, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rebels. A thousand years into the reign of Jesus Christ. You can't even count the rebels. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. The malcontents at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. As this spirit of this age fosters and builds it. Anyway, self-assembly and the choice of venue. And I think it's interesting in that we, of course, are good patriotic American flag, uh, flag wavers. We salute the flag and we accept the blessing that has been our heritage from Magna Carta, from England, from our um, forefathers that has blessed us with self-determination and the rule of the people. All right. And yet, where do we see that takes people more often than not? Where does democracy take people more often than not? Every time a vote is taken in the Bible, it's always in rebellion against God. Ten spies versus two spies, or uh, give us Barabbas and crucify Christ, or you name it. Point to an election. All right? And I'll show you rebellion against God and a remnant that knows the truth in the minority. All right. Finally, then, the lamentation. So many remarkable themes in this. I'm running out of time, but. Jeremiah's lamentation contains many remarkable themes. There are several lamentations in the book of Jeremiah. And then, of course, there's a collection of lamentations in Lamentations, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, a whole separate book. But even within the book of Jeremiah, we find a number of lamentations that are given. And what's the difference between grumbling and lamentation? Whether you're carnal or not, right? If you're in fellowship and trusting in God's promises, it's a lamentation, Simple rule of thumb. All right. And so uh, look at these themes. My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. You know, one glimmer of hope, one silver lining that Jeremiah could glean was because there was no positive volition in Jerusalem, but he could hear a rumor of positive volition in Babylon. I mean, there were, there were prophets in Babylon. Daniel was in Babylon. Ezekiel was in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, real heroes of the faith, are in Babylon. Babylon's going to become a center of, of Judaism. In fact, in later centuries, a whole Talmud gets written in Babylon. It becomes a center of Jewish uh, life and thought and, and, and uh, scholarship. And so he hears this little glimmer of uh, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Ah, there is a remnant in that distant land. And so there is reason for hoping. There is a diaspora, the Jewish diaspora. Is that judgment or is that grace or is that both? It's actually both. He scatters them. The Jewish people have been scattered all over the face of this earth for 20 centuries now. And that is in judgment, but that's also in grace. That's also in blessing. God has preserved a remnant. More that I could say on that. I could preach a whole hour on that. How nations would find themselves under judgment. You know, the, uh, Spain kicked out the Jews in 1492. Does that year ring a bell? All right. You know how quickly Spain lost their global empire? After 1492, I mean, yeah, I get it. Columbus sailed the ocean blue and a whole new world was opened up and everything seemed marvelous. But the judgment that came upon the Spanish crown, the Spanish people for their anti-Semitism, same thing with England, same thing with, with Germany, same thing. Every culture that has turned hostile to the Jewish people has faced consequences. And uh, why has our nation been blessed the way we have? We have been a refuge for Jewish people since our founding. Jewish people aren't living in terror that we're going to burn their synagogues down. They have freedom in our land. They have whole grocery stores. They have whole neighborhoods. They have, you know, a public presence without fear for the most part. 
certainly compared to other places. All right. Anyway, there's a theme here. The diaspora is a theme. Um, the departed glory and the vacated throne. Oh my goodness, look at this. Um, verse 19, is the Lord not in Zion? What happened to the glory? What happened to the Shekinah glory that used to sit on the mercy seat, that used to hover beneath the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies? Where did that go? Ezekiel actually saw it depart. Jeremiah looks around and says, man, it's gone. And the king, is he not on the throne? Is the king not within here? What happens? And so we have a, a departed glory and a vacated throne. This is a theme within Jeremiah's lamentation and it's descriptive of the Jewish people to this day. Does that mean that God is not fulfilling his promises? Or does that mean that he has to fulfill his promises? They just haven't happened yet. And let me tell you, it's not Bibi Netanyahu in the Knesset. Okay? It is the son of David on the throne of David. It is Jesus Christ himself when he returns at second advent. You know, they came back from Babylon. The Persians let them come back. They let them rebuild their temple. They rebuilt the temple, but you know what never showed up? Shekinah glory never showed up. Herod remodeled the temple, made it larger than it had ever been. And as large as Herod could make it, there was never a Shekinah glory in that second temple. Only the first temple had a Shekinah glory. It disappeared. It went away. And it went to, it actually went to the east, stood on the Mount of Olives, and ascended to the Mount of Olives, a preview of what our Savior would do as Jesus himself would go to the Mount of Olives and ascend to heaven. And that glory never came back. Because in the second temple, something greater than that glory would show up, and that would be Jesus Christ himself. We have uh, the passing of seasons. I'm going to have to tie this together here and dismiss. But harvest is past, summer is ended, and we're not saved. How long is this going to take? The seasons are passing. The years are going by. It's been 2,000 years now. And the Davidic throne is still vacated. How long does that take? For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. I dismay. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Is there anything that can heal our sickness? The balm of Gilead was legendary for its medicinal value. Is there, is there any balm in Gilead? Is there any, any uh, essential oil that can, can heal this nation? Well, yeah, there is a physician that's needed, but guess what? Jesus Christ will be that great physician. The balm of Gilead is the person of our Savior. He is the one that will heal the people, but it's by His stripes, it's by His sacrifice that we are healed. It requires His death on the cross. Thankfully, a great physician is on the way in the balm of Gilead reference there and the great physician reference in Matthew 9 and verse 12. Well, I'm out of time. He's mourning. Dismay has taken hold of him. When you are so um, overwhelmed by things, sometimes uh, music is where you take it. And lamentations are put to music. And lamentations are expressions of faith. And uh, this is what Jeremiah is going to do. And so we get into chapter 9, and he's going to compose that lament. And uh, we'll get into that next week, starting with verse 1. All right, Lord willing and rapture pending. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do just rejoice in your faithfulness, and I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, it's not pleasant, Father, to see, uh, to see your nation in a place that is uh, so diminished from where it has been in the past. To see a king that is, can't hold a candle to kings of, time, of generations gone by. To see rebellion against the word of God when there used to be such hunger for the word of God. And Father, Jeremiah is seeing all of this and he knows that it is your hand of judgment upon his people. I pray, Father, that we might be mindful of these things as we observe similar realities in in our nation. And also humble, Father, to recognize that we do not have the Davidic promises. We do not have, we are not the theocracy of Israel. 
Israel was destroyed in 70 AD, but they have a future promise to them. If our nation is destroyed, Father, we have no future promise to us. And I do ask for your mercy and ask for your grace to shine forth. I pray that churches will get busy, that pastors will quit fooling around, that the fun and games and entertainment and programs would would just get ditched. And Father, that your children would get serious about your truth, studying to show themselves approved, studying and living the Word of God, that we might be uh, the last remnant of sanity in a world that's lost its mind. Father, help us to speak the truth in love, to be children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to stand forth as those that have truth, not because we're so smart or we're so special and we're better than anybody, but because, Father, you are the God of truth and we are in you. We have the truth that you've blessed us with. So, uh, Father, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight to be the expressions of your grace. And I do thank you, Father. I thank you for our visitors today. I thank you for all your faithfulness, Father, for testimony to how gracious you are day by day and moment by moment. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.